book of 1 Samuel, and uh, that is um, in the 200s in that Bible, page uh, 225 is where it starts in the Pew Bibles. And if you have uh, a regular Bible, I'd say it's, uh, let's say one-tenth, one-tenth in, so if you don't you know a Bible as well, so there you go, after Ruth, and before 2 Samuel, or First and Second Kings, but... A city in a desert, surrounded by mountains, with 60,000 worshipers. Also, in the center of the city is a place to worship, a central place. And there, a symbol is burned at the end of the week. Well, I'm not talking about Jerusalem. I'm not talking about Shiloh. I'm not talking about a city 2,000 years ago. In fact, I'm talking about a city that is in existence right now, today. And it's happening on this very day. And it's in the desert of Nevada. And what is happening there, you can see on the front of your worship guide. You probably said, what in the heck is this? And what is happening is, this is the third largest city in Nevada this weekend. This is Black Rock City, the home of Burning Man, where 60,000 people gather uh, for art installations. They make art cars. There's lots of loud music. There's lots of recreational inhibitors. Take that for what it's worth. Um, Mass burnings. And people throughout the world gathered. And a lot of elite people. In fact, some of the richest people in the world go to this gathering especially the elites of Silicon Valley, in this three-day festival that happens in Black Rock, and it actually becomes what's called Black Rock City on that day. And on last night, there was a towering, I think it's about 100 feet to 150 feet um, high man, made of wood, that is burned to the ground. It's also probably one of the most hedonistic places in America uh, during the year. And uh, it has some issues. And we might say, oh, wow, look how bad the world has gotten. Burning Man is an example of it. But what we are going to see is this. That what we read in 1 Samuel is not very far from or even worse than what we might see at this festival called Burning Man. And this same situation we see this weekend is the same kind of precarious situation that Israel is in. And the question I want to ask you this morning is this. How can God break into a place like that? Burning Man? How can God break into a place like Israel as we read in 1 Samuel? Well, we're going to find out, shall we? So let's read a fun narrative this morning. And it's in your worship guide again, or you can look in your Bibles. 1 Samuel chapter 1, verses 1 through 20. You'll see how I do pronouncing. (laughs) There was a certain man of Ramatham Zophim of the hill country of Ephraim, whose name was Elkanah, the son of Jeroham. Son of Elhu, son of Tohu, 
son of Zuf, an Ephratite. He had two wives. The name of the one was Hannah, and the name of the other, Panina. And Panina had children, but Hannah had no children. Now this man used to go up year by year from his city to worship and to sacrifice to the Lord of hosts at Shiloh, where the two sons of Eli, Hophni and Phinehas, were priests of the Lord. On the day when Elkanah sacrificed, he would give portions to Penina, his wife, and to all her sons and daughters. But to Hannah he gave a double portion, because he loved her, though the Lord had closed her womb. And her rival used to provoke her grievously to irritate her, because the Lord had closed her womb. So it went on year by year. As often as she went up to the house of the Lord, she used to provoke her. Therefore Hannah wept and would not eat. And Elkanah, her husband, said to her, Hannah, why do you weep? And why do you not eat? And why is your heart sad? Am I not more to you than ten sons? After they had eaten and drunk in Shiloh, Hannah rose. Now Eli, the priest, was sitting on the seat beside the doorpost of the temple of the Lord. She was deeply distressed and prayed to the Lord and wept bitterly. And she vowed a vow and said, O Lord of hosts, If you will indeed look on the affliction of your servant and remember me and not forget your servant, but will give to your servant a son, then I will give him to the Lord all the days of his life, and no razor shall touch his head. As she continued praying before the Lord, Eli observed her mouth. Hannah was speaking in her heart, and only her lips moved, and her voice was not heard. Therefore, Eli took her to be a drunken woman. And Eli said to her, How long will you go on being drunk? Put your wine away from you. But Hannah answered, No, my Lord, I am a woman troubled in spirit. I have drunk neither wine nor strong drink, but I have been pouring out my soul before the Lord. Do not regard your servant as a worthless woman, for all along I have been speaking out of my great anxiety and vexation. Then Eli answered, Go in peace. And the God of Israel grant your petition that you have made to him. And she said, let your servant find favor in your eyes. Then the woman went away and ate, and her face was no longer sad. They rose early in the morning and worshiped before the Lord. Then they went back to their house at Ramah. And Elkanah knew Hannah, his wife, and the Lord remembered her. And in due time, Hannah conceived and bore a son. And she called his name Samuel. For she said, I have asked for him from the Lord. The word of the Lord. God, this is your word. This is your history of your people. God, let it not be far removed from us today. But let it speak to our lives. Give us ears to hear this morning and attention to your word. In your son's name, amen. Well, welcome. Uh, You've come at a good time if you're visiting because we are starting a new series in the book of 1 Samuel. And 1 Samuel starts where the book of Judges leaves off. And the book of Judges we went through two years ago as a church. And if you don't know this, we are trying as a church to go through the whole Bible. In the fall, we do an Old Testament book um, rotating between narrative and... and, uh, 
the um, prophets. And then in the spring, we rotate New Testament books between the gospels and epistles. And then in the summer, we go through wisdom literature. So we're trying to go through the whole Bible together. And I like the idea of switching semesters because the Bible is great that it has different genres and different ways to speak to us. And today, we are looking at narrative. And again, Samuel starts where Judges leaves off. And where does Judges leave us? Well, Judges says this at the end of the book. It says, in those days, there was no king in Israel. And people did what was right in their own eyes. In those days, there was no king in Israel. And people did what was right in their own eyes. I think we have this um, concept that in pre-modern societies, societies without advanced technology or societies where medicine wasn't as advanced, where infant mortality was high, that they were superstitious people. They were worshipful people. They just all just bowed down and worshiped God no matter what. They just obeyed him in all things. That's what pre-modern people did. But now, of course, we have gotten past that in the Enlightenment, and we have got advanced medicine. We see there's there's problems, and we can answer the supernatural, we think, and, and all these things. And so we don't really need to worship God because, you know, we're not as scared or we're not as superstitious as people might be in pre-modern societies. But that evaluation and thinking about societies back then might be wrong. In fact, I think the human condition says this. That we want to do things our own way. No matter what civilization, no matter what culture, no matter what time frame. Even back then, in 1000 BC, these people did what was right in their own eyes. And they did not follow the Lord. And it was bad. There was murder in Israel. Much stealing. Genocide. And even the priesthood, those that were supposed to be followers of God, were very, very corrupt. If you want to um, see a good uh, kind of Pulp Fiction kind of scenario or a Quentin Tarantino film, just read Judges 17 and uh, ahead. I encourage you, if you want to see how bad it really is in Israel that time, read the end of Judges. It's pretty wicked uh, and pretty bad. And Israel is in trouble. So here Israel has come out of Egypt. They have conquered the land. And now they are in the land of Egypt, a land of Israel, a space that's in between Egypt and greater kingdoms. It's kind of a middle ground place. And the truth is other nations go back and forth through Israel. It's a really vulnerable kind of place. And Israel is now vulnerable as a nation. Even though they claim the land, they are susceptible to being attacked by other people. And this is what's happened at this time as we read 1 Samuel, that there is a nation among the coast of Israel called the Philistines, and they are raising up and becoming powerful. And in fact, they have mastered ironwork, and the Israelites have not. They've been able to form swords and shields and chariots, where Israel does not have that power. And on top of that, Israel is corrupt from the inside. And all it is, is it's these 12 tribes with no central leader, no king. And it 
is vulnerable. So 1 Samuel is going to try to answer the question, is Israel going to make it? Will they have someone that brings together the 12 tribes? Will it be a nation that is going to be a nation that exists for the long haul? This is why this book is so good, okay? I love this book. It's so exciting. Because in it, we see wars between nations, battles, the raising of leaders, the conquering of giants, the intrigue of politics, the rise of Israel to being a great nation under great kings. And that is the book of 1 Samuel. And so what we're going to do is, in September, we're going to look at the person of Samuel, the last great judge. And then in October, we're going to look at the first king of Israel, Saul. And then in November and December, we're going to look at the great king of Israel, King David. And we're going to learn all these leadership principles together. You know, how do I conquer the workplace? How do I control the chaos of home? How do I run for class president of my school? I don't know what it might be. We're going to learn some great leadership principles, right? That's what this book is all about. And I'm ready to get right into these leadership principles of how I'm supposed to lead in my life. But then God gives us this story, which makes me go, what the heck are you doing? I'm ready for battles. I'm ready for kings. I'm ready for political intrigue. But instead, I get this weepy woman, Hannah. This is what we get. Here's the thing. Before we get to these great battles and these kings, we are going to see how God really raises leaders. He takes the weak He takes those in precarious positions and he raises them up. That is how he changes nations. That's how he changes people. And I encourage you, this passage, I hope, speaks to everyone here today that might feel, my life doesn't feel very significant. Because if this incident in a woman's ordinary life could be such a significant step in the eternal plan of a saving God, each day for us could be no less significant for us to be used by God for his plans and for his purposes. So let's see the way that God uses ordinary people for amazing things, especially in the life of Hannah. Again, verse 1 and verse 2, they trick us. Because when you start a genealogy in the Bible, you expect a king to be raised up. We start with this genealogy with all these crazy names, and we say, oh great, this is a son of this and a son of that. Here it is, we are going to find a Messiah, a Savior, a king. But instead, who becomes the main focus? This woman, Hannah. And the readers of 1 Samuel and us today would go, what? How can you... Start this litany of genealogy where we think we're getting to a king and then instead we get to this woman. And what do we realize about this woman? 
Um, family dysfunction, anyone? That's what we'll call um, the, her family. Um, I love how we sometimes compare our family dysfunctions, um, but let's all appreciate how bad Hannah really has it. I don't think any of us have come from polygamous families. If we have, I'd love to talk to you about that experience. Um, but here Hannah um, is uh, sharing uh, her husband with another woman, and uh, she is probably the first wife. Uh, because she comes first in the order, and because it says that uh, um, Elkanah loved her first. And what happened at that time is when uh, the first wife did not uh, produce children, we see that um, the Hebrews have a tradition of then marrying another woman to then produce children for them. Um, That happened with Abraham, right? Um, He married Sarah's servant, um, and because Sarah was not producing kids, And, uh, you know, I hope no one goes, oh, polygamy is uh, what is normative for the Bible. That's what God tells us we're supposed to do. No, it's not. Um, It's what the Israelites decided to do. God actually warned against um, having multiple wives. Uh, And uh, they did it, again, to produce many, many children. Uh, A lot of times because they did not trust in God's provision for his people. And the thing is, children were everything to the Israelites because they were signs of the promise that from their children would come a Messiah. And then for this woman, Hannah, to not have children, this is, would just rock her. God, if you say the way your faithfulness is shown to your people is by us having future generations and I have no kids, how do I know that you really care for me and you love me? And then to add insult to injury, what does Hannah's name mean? To be favored. (laughs) And what does uh, Elkanah's other wife's name, Penina, mean? Fruitful. I can imagine as uh, Penina is talking to Hannah and making fun of her, as it says, and insulting her, she says, uh, that's pretty funny, your name, fruitful, or I mean, um, to be God uh, being, being favored, but you have no favor. You have no kids. This is the kind of environment she is in. Being ridiculed by this other woman in the house. Having no kids. And then on top of that, the family decides to go on vacation. Which really what it was. Because Shiloh was the place where there was a great festival. And where um, the tabernacle was. It was probably very pretty and opulent. And uh, people would come throughout Israel to Shiloh to worship, but more than just to worship, to eat and drink and to be merry. And here she is in this festival setting, and uh, Elkanah, her husband, to show, oh yeah, I give all this food to Penina and all her kids. Oh, I know I give a lot of food to them, but I'll, I'll give you a double portion. And trying to appease her. And then he goes further, doesn't he? What does he say? He says, why are you weeping? I mean, come on. Aren't I better than ten sons? Am I not enough? Men, we do this, okay? Don't we? Come on, why are you crying? Aren't I enough? Don't I give you enough? Isn't it okay what I give you? You know, as much as we try to appease the situation we might be in, by saying, oh, it's fine, just be fine where you're at, we see that even Hannah says, this is a hard place. 
I know you give me a double portion. I know we go to this vacation in Shiloh. I know you love me in a a massive way. But all these things that are around me just show that I am in a bad place. That I do not have. That I feel that I am not favored at all. Because I have no children. And still I wonder, how does this have anything to do with saving Israel? This woman's plight, this domestic squabble, how does it have anything to do with saving Israel? I think it has everything to do with saving Israel. Because here these people gather in Shiloh to feast, to have a good time, to party, to drink. And what is Shiloh? What is there? The tabernacle is there. And what dwells in the tabernacle? But God himself. You see, God is there wanting to answer the plights of Israel, the pleas that people have. And God doesn't just do big things like saving the whole nation of Israel. He even does small things in answering the pleas of people that are in bad places. Even domestic issues, even being barren, God will show his power to whoever and whomever calls out to him. Um, you know, I think I hear this a lot, and I say it a lot, and I really, it's a problem. I say, you know, God, I, I shouldn't really plead to you about things or other people shouldn't plead to you because there's much bigger problems going on in the world. Why would you care about my little things that are going on? Or I can say, you know, look how good you've got it. It's not that bad. I mean, isn't my love greater than having 10 sons? I mean, come on, this is a good place. Why are you so troubled? But here's the thing. God wants us to call out to him no matter where our situation is at. And the truth is, many times as Christians, we think our situation isn't that bad. Look how other people have it bad. Or when, how can I complain? Look how good I have it. Where in fact, we don't then allow ourselves to go to God because we are in Shiloh, in his presence, to plead with him with whatever is going on in our lives. And I'm afraid that some of us feel like, oh yeah, I'm not a weeper. I'm a person that pulls himself up from his own bootstraps. I don't need to plead to God. I don't need to ask him for things. I'm fine. But Hannah shows us the way that God starts to move in mighty ways is when we plead to him even in the small things. Well, Hannah's not going to be passive, is she? No. She's heard from her husband. She's eaten to appease him, probably. Okay, I'll eat the food. And then she says, fine. I'm going to go out to see what really is in Shiloh. I am going to go to the tabernacle, to the place where God dwells. And I'm going to pray to him. And here, pick up in verse 9. After they'd eaten and drunk in Shiloh, Hannah rose... Now Eli the priest was sitting on the seat beside the doorpost of the temple of the Lord, which is the tabernacle. 
She was deeply distressed and prayed to the Lord and wept bitterly. And she vowed a vow and said, O Lord of hosts, if you will indeed look on the affliction of your servant and remember me and forget not your servant, but will give to your servant a son, then I will give him to the Lord all the days of his life. And no razor shall touch his head. There's no praying technique here. There is just a calling out to God in distress. A weeping bitterly about what is going on. And she says, remember me. What does this mean? That God forgets her? No. When she says remember, when people in Israel said, God, remember me. What they're saying is, God, be true to your promises to us. Be true to your promises that you will save us through our generation, through a Messiah. Be true to your promises that you will give us a land. Be true to your promises that you are faithful and you care for us. And then she says, if you give me a child, I will give the Nazarite vow to them. It's what Samson had. It's what John the Baptist had. No drink, no cutting of hair, no being around the dead. That is what I promise I will give this child. I will set this child apart from you. I think sometimes we can think this is a quid pro quo, this for that. Okay, she's saying, okay, God, if um, you give me a child, I will then give you this. But the truth is, every single child that God gives the Israelites are his to begin with. You know, Abraham, when he had Isaac, didn't say before he had Isaac, I will commit Isaac to you, Lord. I will give him to you. But in fact, when Isaac finally came, what did God do to Abraham? He said, will you give my, my child that I gave you to me? Will you give Isaac to me? Will you sacrifice him? Will you trust that your son is not yours, but in fact, he is mine? And you see that Hannah is even more faithful and more trusting in God than Abraham to say, I believe from the very beginning that my child is not my own, but is yours. And you know what makes Hannah even more amazing? You know, when Samson came also, who had a Nazarite vow on Judges, his parents got visited by an angel to say, you're going to have a special child and make a Nazarite vow. Hannah is, she doesn't receive any supernatural appearance. She sees nothing that goes on angel from the God. She sees none of that. But even in the midst of not seeing any of those things, she still trusts in the Lord and pleads to him and says, God, give me a special child. Hannah is showing more faithfulness than the patriarchs and leaders of Israel are showing. This barren woman who comes from a lineage that is just obscure and in a time that is just corrupt, she is the one that is being faithful. And this is where this, I just love the Bible because you can't make this stuff up. She goes there to the tabernacle and she's praying. And what does Eli, the priest of the temple, the religious leader of the people, the intercessor between God and the people think of this woman praying? She's drunk. I think this, we'll see about Eli and his family how corrupt they are as we go on in 1 Samuel. But hear me, please. 
Do you know how bad it has gotten in Israel? This is how bad it has gotten. It has gotten so bad that the priest of Israel can't even tell when someone is truly praying in the temple or not. That is how bad it has gotten. It is probably so bad in Shiloh that when people come to be a part of the sacrifices, they are drunk, that drunk people probably come to the tabernacle stumbling and drunk, and that's what he thinks this woman is doing too. This is the state of Israel. This is where it has come. Drunk people in the tabernacle. And then when someone is actually faithful and praying, we don't even know what it is. That's how bad it has become. Do you see what God does? God takes this woman that is obscure and just maybe benign and he shows faithfulness in her. And she is the one that teaches the priest of Israel. She is the one that comes to God in the right way. And you doubt me? Do you know how she comes to God? She gives God the personal name. She says, Lord Yahweh, Lord of hosts, meaning head of all the angels, king of the universe, head of all the sky. I come to you. And what does Eli name God? He doesn't call God by his personal name. Instead, he calls him by his cultic name, Elohim. He doesn't call him the Lord of hosts. He calls him the Lord of Israel. Do you see that Hannah calls to God personally when Eli doesn't call to God personally in his personal name? Instead, he says, the cultic Lord. Answer her prayers. Peace be upon her. You know, if I was given a pledge by a priest to say, peace be on you, let everything you have asked for come to fruition, I want to see some evidence, okay? I'm not going to go back and go, okay, I'm going to cash in my chips. I'm going to be happy. I'm going to eat. I'm going to be content. No, I'm going to wait for the money to come. I'm going to wait for the promise to be there. But Hannah, before even receiving pregnancy, before even knowing that the child will come, she goes back and eats. And her face was no longer sad. You know, I know I'm a Presbyterian and we have all this like reform language and we say God is sovereign, right? Meaning he's in control of all things. He's the king of all things. He knows the past. He knows the future. He knows everything. And uh, many times the result of that kind of thinking of that who is God is, is, you know, why should um, I even ask for things? Because God knows all things. Why should I even go forward? I should just be passive because God's going to do it anyway. And then if I have tragedy in my life, it's only because of what God has done and I'm just going to resent him. Here's the thing. Hannah believes in the sovereignty of God. That God has placed upon her barrenness. But even in facing this tragedy, 
And even knowing that God is sovereign over all things, she still says, I trust in you, Lord. I will not be passive. I will go forward and plead and ask from you, knowing I do not know what you'll provide. I trust what you have. And even in not knowing that he's going to provide a child or not, she goes back and she is content. And how much more do we know that Hannah trusts the Lord is that when actually her son does come, she abides by the promise that she said she would do. I will give him up to the Lord. She didn't say that she was going to give him to the priests, but she does after he's been weaned. He gives, she gives her only son, Samuel, to the Lord. Hannah trusts and she has faith. She's obedient to God, even in knowing he's going to provide. He knows all things, but I'm not going to be passive. I'm going to ask and plead to him. I'm going to come to him that he would answer the desires of my heart. Um, I know you, if you can read the Hebrew, you see some things here. Uh, the word, um, he, the verb ask is used seven times from verses 1 through 20. Ask, 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 ask. Hannah asks of the Lord. And Eli says, you have asked the Lord and may the um, Lord answer your asking, is what the actual Hebrew is saying. In James, it says the same thing. It says this. You do not have because you do not ask. And those that do not have you do not have because you ask with selfish motives. If there is anyone that lives out that passage of James, it's Hannah. She asks of the Lord. And when she asks, she asks not for her own blessing, for the blessing of God and giving her child to God. Hannah asks, believing in the promises of the Lord. And then it gets so good. It says this, And in due time Hannah conceived and bore a son. And she called his name Samuel. For she said, I have asked for him from the Lord. Um, some commentators say this is really confusing. Because um, Samuel might sound like the verb to ask. But actually the name Samuel doesn't mean to ask. Actually, the name Samuel means his name is God. What? Did they get it wrong? Is, that, is the Bible wrong here? I've asked for him from the Lord. That's not even his name. His name means his name is God. Here's the thing what makes this so, so good. Do you know what the name to ask really is? It's the name Saul. Saul is to ask. Hannah, your son, Samuel, who you ask for from God, who is from God, will be the one that will anoint and then bring in the first king of Israel, Saul. Through your asking, there will be deliverance in Israel. A king will come to suppress the Philistines, to bring together the tribes, 
to save this nation. Please hear me, okay? If you haven't heard anything, please hear this, okay? Regardless of how desperate the situation looks outwardly, God is preparing his chosen individuals in order to fulfill his plan and purpose according to his gracious concern for his people. Regardless of how desperate it is, God is preparing his chosen individuals in order to fulfill his plan according to his purposes. And he will choose anyone that calls and asks upon his name. <laughs> I love, um, there's been a lot of criticism of Luke chapter 1 over uh, the years that um, the story of Christ's birth is just borrowing from uh, pagan ideas, especially in 4th century Greece. Um, I will say this, actually not. Um, it is borrowing, Luke chapter 1, from other ideas. Uh, but it's not borrowing from pagan ideas. It's borrowing from this story right here. <laughs> um, 600 years before the pagan ideas of that kind of birth. In 1000 B.C., and there was another story about a king being born in Luke chapter 1, wasn't there? And he was born from a more uh, precarious situation. And a more needy woman. A, a, probably a 13 or 14 year old girl. That was obscure. A humble girl. That trusted in God. A humble situation born in a stable. And from this girl would come a revolution in the world. From this obscure story, in Luke chapter 1, you're expecting a king. Here's a genealogy and here is Mary. You see, from these people, God raises up his plan. In these situations, he changes things. Man, I love that kind of God. That he starts this book of kings and rulers and nations with a woman, Hannah. And he uses her to start his plan of salvation in this country, in Israel. Phil Wyman, he's a pastor out east. And he said, I'm just going to take a couple guys and we're going to go to Burning Man. And he went to Burning Man, this Christian in this very uh, <laughs> drug-induced, uh, naked environment. And they set up three pillars. They're about 15 feet high. And it's, it was an art installation, what you do at Burning Man. And people would come and say, what is this? What are, what are these pillars? And he said, I want you to meet the Spirit God. I want you to meet God upon this high place. And he was borrowing from the Desert Fathers who used to sit upon high pillars and pray to God. And so these people at Burning Man would climb up this pillar and they would sit on top. 
And he said, I just want you to pray to God. And at Burning Man, these people wept on top of these pillars. People cried. People sang. People shouted. People sat there for hours in silence. And they came back down. And he tells a couple stories. One man that was weeping came down. And he pointed to Burning Man, to all these people and all these things that were going on. And he said to Phil, he said, this is not what my life is about anymore. I need to make some changes. And then that's the last he saw of him. The man just walked off in the desert. Another girl came down and they had this black tablet and you would write in water and she dipped her finger in the water and and she drew on the tablet and on the tablet she put me and then with the heat of the sun in the desert the me evaporated and Phil asked her what did you mean by writing that and she said it's time for me to make some changes you know where it starts at Burning Man Where it starts in Appleton. Where it starts in Israel. It starts with people meeting God and asking of him. And saying, God, I need you. I am desperate. My story might not be amazing. But you know where I am. Do you see where change happens? Change happens with people that might seem insignificant and people that ask of the Lord, like Hannah. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, like I said earlier this morning, I lift up Burning Man to you, Black Rock City. I pray for the 60,000 people there this morning, many that are far away from you, that you would speak to them, that they would ask and you would answer, that we would see revival in that place, that we would see a place so corrupt be turned to you. And God, I pray the same for Appleton, Wisconsin, a place that's so secure and safe and families are so happy. We're not hedonists, but true Lord, we are far from you at times. That you would raise up individuals in this church to ask of you, may a mighty thing happen in our lives and in the city at large. And through our lives changing, people would see the power that you have. In your son's name we pray, amen.